0: The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. you, our worship this morning, as we get into the text for this morning. This morning I'm going to tell you a story. This is a true story, and it's found in the Bible. for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it to the ground. So he threw it to the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous, like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, "Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord Israel, is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, Behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the peoples of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is a true story.
1: If you're wondering about the screaming downstairs, I've been informed that they're um, they're learning about Nehemiah and uh, protecting the walls of Jerusalem. So I think there's some raids going on. Um, well, it's good to see you all today. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for these true words, and we ask for your help now that we would be able to enter into this story and that we would be able to connect it with our own stories and that we would be further drawn into your story. We ask this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Well, last week we saw that Moses came to realize his need to identify with the people of God. And while that moment of decision was exciting and full of glorious possibilities for how he would be used in the larger story, we saw when he killed the Egyptian that he had relied on himself, and he fell flat on his face. So now Moses is exiled in Midian, and we see that he wasn't just left to drift and to grow bitter, but actually God provided a, a safe landing for him, a place of belonging and peaceful but mundane work, and as we saw last week with his firstborn son's name, um, the meaning of that, Moses knows more than ever that he didn't really belong in Egypt. But we do get the impression that he's also lost any sense of driving purpose outside of the regular routines of life. I wonder if the same could be said of us. We came into the people of God, with a sense of excitement, even adventure. We'd risk anything, and and the future seemed full of possibility. But the story that we imagined was entirely too dependent upon us. We wouldn't have said so at the time, but looking back, we can see that it was true that we were going to do great things for God, and so those efforts didn't yield the results that we thought they would, and we got the wind knocked out of us. And while we would never go back to our pre-Christian life, we don't quite know what to aim for anymore, other than to wake up another day and perform the same good but mundane tasks. Maybe, like Moses, we need an unexpected encounter with the living God. In our passage today, we're going to see that God wanted to surprise and to overwhelm Moses with a new revelation of what his life was all about and how it would work. And the burning bush encounter wouldn't only reshape Moses' sense of identity and purpose, but eventually through him, God would bring all of Israel back to that same mountain, and they would all have a similar sort of experience. Now, at the, ch- at the start of chapter 3, we, we see that Moses is he's headed toward this transformative experience, but it's not because he was desperately seeking it, right? He's just minding his own business. He's leading his sheep and they're grazing near Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. And we read that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. Can you imagine how fascinating and kind of how freaky that would have been? right? Like maybe he rubbed his eyes to to make sure he wasn't hallucinating, and then when he was sure he wasn't hallucinating, maybe he got chills all over his body, or maybe his his heart started palpitating, I don't know. But uh, when he realized that that this was real, he goes near. And I just want to challenge you, if this account is familiar to you at all, uh, really work to just grasp again the shocking unnaturalness of this. Try to put yourself there. It says here that the angel of the Lord appeared to him. The angel of the Lord. And yet, in the rest of the narrative, we'll see very explicitly that it's God himself talking. So what do we make of that? Mere angels don't create holy ground. Mere angels don't force you to hide your face. And mere angels don't say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what's this business about the angel of the Lord? Well, that term is used throughout the Old Testament, and often when the angel of the Lord appears, he does accept some sort of worship, which other angels like Gabriel or Michael or the angel in Revelation, they certainly would never do. So, we have this being who seems to be God, and yet is something separate from God. What do we do with that? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. This seems to be the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. He was active among the people of God even before he took on flesh, before he received the name Jesus, before he dwelled among us. He wasn't just sitting on the bench in heaven. And so we see God himself is speaking to Moses. Moses. And he announces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he says he has heard his people's cry, he has come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. And therefore he's sending Moses to Pharaoh to bring God's people out. And for Moses, this raises three big questions. And this is one of the longest dialogues between God and a person recorded in Scripture. God is just going to patiently answer Moses' questions and objections, his hesitations and fears. And he did that because he was in the process of forming Moses. And this was all recorded for us in Scripture because he's in the process of forming us. God wants to radically reorient the way that you go about life according to who he is. Who he is changes everything about who you are and how you're meant to operate. Now, before we hear any of God's answers to our questions, though, uh, we're going to have to have a sense of his profound holiness. We need to be caught off guard by it, just like Moses was. Do you really understand the purity and the otherliness of this God? Fire is a symbol of his throughout Exodus. We see the fire in the bush here. We see the the pillar of fire leading his people later in the book. We see fire descending on Mount Sinai in chapter 19. We see fire descending on the tabernacle at the very end of the book. Why fire? Well, fire is warm. Fire is bright. Fire is fascinating to gaze at. Moses is drawn to the bush by it. We saw that. But fire is also dangerous. Fire is also a warning to come near in the right way. And so even Hebrews 12 reminds us not to take him for granted because our God is a consuming fire. And so remembering that you're on holy ground is essential when we're wrestling with the big questions of life. The one you're talking to is the one to whom you owe everything. And precisely because he loves you, he won't let you engage with him in a flippant manner. First, in verse 11, Moses asks his first big question, who am I? Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring out my people, the children of Israel? In other words, why me? I'm not qualified. I have no sense of identity that would allow me to reasonably accept that task and isn't it interesting that Moses came to this place? Because last week we saw he was the perfect person for the job, right? He was a Hebrew who was raised in Pharaoh's very palace. He knew the wisdom and the culture and the religion and politics of Egypt better than most Egyptians did. He, was, he had the credentials. He was the perfect person to be the go-between for these two peoples. And yet... We see that the failure of chapter 2 verses 11 through 15 that must have really gone deep for Moses And in this dialogue, he's not confident at all He's actually going to essentially whine to God throughout this dialogue Because overconfident Moses had truly had the wind knocked out of him So now he rightfully sees that he himself is not the Savior He could never be the savior of his people. He rightfully sees his own powerlessness. He sees that he's simply not essential to God's purposes. He sees those things clearly enough. But unfortunately, he hasn't seen other truths, truths about God. And that's why Moses' hesitancy is the exact opposite of what we see of the prophet Isaiah. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, The prophet Isaiah has uh, an encounter with the living God, and he's equally struck by his own unworthiness. But then when God asks, whom shall I send? He says, here I am, send me. So what did Isaiah understand that Moses didn't? Well, how God next answers Moses is deeply relevant for many of us, especially if you've ever had the wind knocked out of you and you're afraid to take risks for God. Maybe like Moses, you've had your idealism burned away, but you haven't really replaced it with the full hopeful truth of the situation. The truth is that you have a sacred task placed before you. Thankfully, it's, it's not to go in front of Pharaoh and deliver the people of God. Or is it? There's a sense in which any task that we could undertake for God really is connected to the work of the greater Moses, Jesus, and his bringing a people out of slavery to sin and into the joyful belonging to God. So his charge to us as we go is to make disciples. And so we endeavor courageously to speak of Christ, to share the good news with neighbors, coworkers, family, and friends, even if we feel just like Moses, a clumsy, dirty shepherd wandering into the halls of glory and power. Even if it seems nonsensical and we pray and we walk with people through baptism We bring them into the church and we teach all that jesus has commanded us We teach our own families what we're learning We teach friends who aren't as far along in the faith with us and we we teach kids in sunday school we do all these sorts of tasks that are cooperating with jesus deliverance of his people okay, we may see how those tasks echo moses work, but What about tasks that aren't so clearly making disciples? What about when I face gut-wrenching pressures at my job? What about when I'm struggling with a strong-willed child? What about when my life is upended by cancer treatments? Are these connected to making God's name known in Egypt and to, to freeing a people from slavery? The short answer is yes. Everything we attempt, or everything that we suffer in this life can be done with a Godward view that speaks of him and commends his deliverance and his reward over and against the priorities of this world. But do we have the courage to live that way? Or do we say, who am I that I should attempt something like that? Who am I? God's answer is found in the very next verse. Moses asks, who am I? And God answers, but I will be with you. I will be with you. At first, that might seem like a non-answer answer. God could have said, who are you? You're, you're Moses. You're the perfect champion for this people. But he didn't do that because we know that Moses' natural strengths, they wouldn't have been enough. No natural strengths are enough, and therefore, natural strengths are irrelevant. So Moses rightfully felt inadequate, and the Lord agrees. The Lord never negates that intuition in Moses. He never tries to puff up Moses. Instead, he says, yes, you're right, you can't be the hero, but I will be with you. Moses didn't need to look at the bright side. Moses didn't need to hear some encouraging words. Moses didn't need to have a better self-esteem. No, Moses needed a greater sense of God's presence. The point isn't his adequacy or his inadequacy. The point is the Lord's presence with him. And neither his achievements or his failures are going to influence that fact of God's presence. Now, in chapter 19, that presence is assured not just to Moses, but actually to all the people. It said they will be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. We are meant to operate as a people who are in the presence of the Lord. And so what that means for us as we attempt to do things in Christian service to our God, it means that we always start with his presence with us. That's what fuels us, not some crazy notion of our own suitability, regardless of of how he may or may not have gifted us. Who are we? We are the people defined by the presence of our God. But that raises another big question. Who are you, God? Moses asks, "If, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? It won't help to live with confidence that God is with us if we don't know who he is. And we won't be able to make much of an impact for his kingdom if he's just the God of our family tradition. And that's the only way we know him. And so Moses asks, what do I tell the people about you? They, they, they don't know you. They haven't spoken with you the way I have or the way Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob did. Now, in the ancient world, a name testified something about the person's character. And so really what Moses is asking here is, what should they know about you? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This wasn't a new name. We know even in Genesis 6, people had begun to call on the the name of Yahweh. And we know that Abraham referred to God by that name. But also, there's another sense, chapter 6 is going to say that the full meaning of that name would be uniquely revealed to this Exodus generation in a new way uh, that, that hadn't been experienced before. But what does it mean? I am who I am. Actually, the verbs are timeless. It could just as easily mean I was who I was, or it could mean I will be who I will be. And that's probably why the book of Revelation speaks of the one who is, who was, who is to come. Because whether in the past or now, in the future, he will be that which he will be. You know, we live in a day and age when people want to define God for themselves. They say things like, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. What do they mean by that? What they mean is, I'm going to worship a being that, caters to my liking. They say, and then, that, you know, that's people who, who kind of make their own religion, but actually Christians aren't that immune from a similar sort of thinking. Have you ever heard Christians say, like, you know, I just don't think God is like that. Based on what? Based on how you would act if you were God? Based on how that makes you feel? But see, if we don't rely on God's own revelation to define him, then what are we doing? We're actually creating God in our image. We're idolaters. Now, when humans tend to make gods, which we, we all do all the time, um, we either opt for gods that swing one way or another. They are either fully transcendent or they're fully imminent. So, fully transcendent, a God who's powerful, a God who is you know, above, uh, you can think of the God of Islam, you can think of the God of, of deism, like a, a watchmaker who sets it all up and then just isn't personally involved. He's too remote, he's too grand. You don't have access to that God. Um, and some people are comforted by that sort of God. But then there's also people who swing the other direction and they want a God who's fully imminent. He's here, he's, he's in us, maybe he is us. Maybe he is nature, and so you can think of the Eastern religions, or you can think of sort of a New Age mysticism. And it's interesting, you you see people who are raised with a fully transcendent God, maybe people in like some, you know, scary, super fundamentalist pockets of of Christianity who just grew up feeling like God was angry at them all the time, and then a lot of times they swing and they become Buddhists or something. But what's the truth of the matter? The truth of the matter is that the real God is both. He is both above us as transcendent, and he is among us. He is imminent, and we, we get his transcendence with the, the freaky bush thing, okay? But we also see here his imminence in verse 7 and following. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them to a good and broad land. So this is a huge piece of the meaning of Yahweh, that he hears our cries. He will not let injustice against his people stand. He is preparing for us a good and broad land, the heavenly country. He has delivered us from the furnace of slavery to sin. He is coming back soon to bring us to the promised land. He is the only God that manifests such transcendence and immanence, such power and compassion because he's the only God who is real. And because he is real, he is self-defining. He is self-defining. He's not a concept for us to choose. And he's all the more terrifying because of that. He is terrifying and he is more loving than we could ever imagine. He says, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me. I am points not only to the fact that God defines himself, but also to the fact that God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need us in any way. It's a correction to us whenever we feel like we can somehow negotiate with God, or if we just give him a little money, give him a little time, a little lip service to get him off our back. No, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't want your stuff. He wants you. And this self-sufficiency is really visible for us in this bush incident, right? Because the fire didn't need to consume any fuel. It just is. It just keeps being. One scholar has called this the is-ness of God. He is. And at his core, he is a living flame. He is an ever-active presence. Now, whenever you see the all-capital letters, LORD, in your English Bibles, what that's representing is the Hebrew Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh is a, it's a, a construct somehow built off of the word, the verb haya, meaning to be. So sometimes you'll hear me read Yahweh when the text says Lord, because after all, he has said, this is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. And so when you hear that name Yahweh, you should think back to his faithfulness to all of those generations, which is exactly what he keeps highlighting. He adds, the the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what that means, because his faithfulness is, is such a key component of his identity, what that means is you really need your whole Bible to understand the meaning of the name Yahweh because it's so closely linked to him keeping his promises. And even here in Exodus 3, right before he reveals this name, it's, it's linked back to two verses earlier when he tells Moses, I will be with you. I will be, there's that verb, haya, I will be with you. His presence with his people, no matter what, is part of the meaning of his name. But that's not all. In later chapters of Exodus, the name Yahweh is linked to how he is the deliverer and redeemer. Later, the name Yahweh is linked to his power over nature and even his power over the hearts of kings. In chapter 12, he says, on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. So Yahweh is linked to his supremacy over all other spiritual powers. And In chapter 33, Yahweh's name is linked to the concept of his freedom. In other words, the God who is doesn't answer to us. He does all he pleases. So all these concepts and more are wrapped into the name Yahweh. It's been said that the whole book of Exodus could be considered one big explanation of what that name means. There's always more of Yahweh's character, his wisdom, his power to be seen and enjoyed and explored. But the name of I Am is not only for Exodus. In the book of John, Jesus fills in more. It might be lost to our ears in translation, but Jesus is very purposeful when he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door to abundant life. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the vine to whom you must be connected if you're going to bear fruit. He says, I am from above. Unless you believe that I am he... You will die in your sins. And then finally, to make it crystal clear at what he's getting at, he, he says to his enemies, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They understood him, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Do you know Yahweh in all the ways that he has revealed himself, and especially? in the person of Jesus. If you don't know who God is, then you won't be able to settle on who you are either. Our identity is grounded in the fact that we were created to live in the presence of God. And he has, in fact, promised to be with his people. His identity is self-defined, self-sufficient, always faithful to his promises, beyond comparison with any other so-called God. But our identity is, is linked to his. And this is, this is fundamental for Moses. It's fundamental for our worldview as well. So we've heard who we are. We've heard who God is. But at the beginning of chapter four, Moses has one more big question, which I'll just summarize as, how can I be effective? How can I be effective? He answers God, behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, Yahweh did not appear to you. Do you ever have fears like that? Like, if I invite my neighbor to church, they'll just laugh at me. If I try to confront or teach my teenage kid, they'll just write me off. If I try to point my spouse to Christ, it'll just make the tension worse. If I take a stand for truth in the workplace, I'll just get run over and kick to the curb. How can we hope to be effective in the tasks that he lays before us? So Moses is thinking, yeah, I'm glad God is with me, but before I go to Pharaoh, who could execute me on the spot, just how exactly is this supposed to work? And the simple answer for Moses was that God was going to give him signs and wonders. The word wonder means something that gets people's attention. The word sign means something that points to something beyond itself. So three signs and wonders are given And Moses is first to show these wonders to the Israelites so that they will believe Yahweh sent him. And then secondly, he's to show these wonders to Pharaoh himself. And the signs pointed to some big truths, right? These aren't just like magic tokens used to impress. No, they mean things. So power over serpents implied God's power over the words of Satan, that serpent of old from the garden. But also... It implied power over Pharaoh because the Egyptian pharaohs had the golden headdress with the serpent front and center. That certainly wouldn't have been lost on anyone. And then the leprous hand, when Moses pulls that out of his cloak, that would have terrified everyone in the room. But then the ability to make it clean again, that was something that no Egyptian god could offer. And then to turn the Nile, the mother river of all of the land's fruitfulness, to turn it to blood was to show that life and death themselves were the jurisdiction of Yahweh alone. Okay, so Moses was given these pretty cool signs, but how does that help us? After biblical times, does God ever send signs and wonders to accompany his message? Certainly, he does. Throughout church history, even in frontline missions today, we see miraculous events that prove unbelievers, prove, point them to his presence and his power and, and God's truthfulness. These things do happen, but the question is, do God's own people believe in his sovereignty enough to take the first steps? Now, we may not have a staff to show God's power over the serpent, but we do have the Spirit-breathed Bible completed. It was, none of it was written <laughs> when Moses' ministry took place, but our Bible is complete and it's wondrous in how it, it's self-proving. And by this word, we can expose and we can thwart the schemes of the evil one. And we may not have a sign of God's power over leprous disease, but we do have miraculous stories of transformation From our own lives, we can show people not just a corrupted hand, but a corrupted life made clean. And then the ultimate final sign of God's power over life and death is not blood from a river. It's the very death and resurrection of our Lord. So God has left us with wonders and signs that are plenty strong enough to get the attention of the world If we would show them now, even after these signs are given, Moses still isn't feeling it. He says, "Look, I just can't be effective. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech and tongue." Likely, what he's getting after is that he's not quick on his feet. He can't. He just can't think. What if Pharaoh asks him something he doesn't expect? What if he stumbles over his words? And God responds. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now, pause. Just think about that. This is a stunning evidence that God has great purpose at work in the lives of disabled people. Well, not only did God make Moses' mouth and its limitations, Moses also finds God God has patiently already provided everything he needs. He tells him, look, your brother Aaron will be your helper. He's already on his way out. I knew you needed him before you even asked. He also tells Moses later, look, all the people who were seeking your life are dead. So God has paved the way for Moses. He has a smooth path. God knows what we need even before we ask him. But Moses is still afraid. And he says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Notice that here, God actually gets angry with Moses. How many different ways would Moses need to hear that because God is Yahweh, and because Yahweh is with him, his fearful hesitancy isn't understandable. It's unbelief. Well, how then should we respond to these revelations of who God is, of who we are in him, of how he's given us everything we need to be effective? The first way to respond is simply obedience. Take the first steps that you know you need to take. Uh, If you have to take those steps with trembling and with a pit in your stomach, that's fine. Starting in chapter 4, verse 18, we see Moses closes up shop where he was in Midian. He accepts the assurance that God has given him. He packs up his family and heads out on a donkey and takes the staff that he'll need. And Aaron also was obedient to his part. And down in verse 27, he goes out in the wilderness to meet Moses. And they get on the same page about everything that God had commanded. And then they present these things to the people. They follow through. So if there's some decision, some task, some change that you know God wants for you, There's nothing better than to just say goodbye to the former things and be on your way. Rip the duct tape off with one motion. Embrace the scary challenge. Obey. A second way to respond was kind of a way not to respond. Do not presume upon such a holy God who has wrapped you into his purposes. Do you take that lightly that he is with you? He is imminent, but he is still transcendent. In chapter 4, verses 24 through 26, we have this strange account of the Lord meeting Moses at a lodging place on the way and seeking to put him to death. What? Wasn't the Lord in the burning bush? He was just assuring Moses of his favorable presence, and now he's trying to kill him? Well, we get some clarity when we see Moses' wife. She circumcises her son, And then the Lord relents. So apparently Moses' second son hadn't been circumcised on the eighth day as God's covenant with Abraham required. So we had this situation where Moses was going to speak on behalf of Yahweh. He was going to lead the people out to renew covenant with Yahweh. And all the time he's not living in line with God's promises himself within his own family. At the very least, this is a grave warning to those of us in ministry leadership. If we're not actually living for Christ in our own homes, such hypocrisy will be found out. This is also a warning to any of us who seek to serve God while not taking seriously the covenant signs that he's given. Would it speak love to your spouse if on your wedding day, you know, they, you get the ring and you don't put it on your hand? You just put it in your pocket Yeah, I'll I'll get to that sometime No God wants us to show That we belong to him And that's what circumcision in the old covenant was all about In the old covenant Okay, men If you're not circumcised today It doesn't matter and I don't want to know about it Um, If you don't know what circumcision is I'm not going to tell you But you can pull out your phone and go to Wikipedia Um, But In the new covenant, people, what is the covenant sign? Have you been baptized? If you've believed these things and you consider yourself to be one of the people of God, but you've never obeyed Jesus by submitting to baptism, then you need to take that step. So please talk with me today. We're probably going to have baptisms sometime in the next few months, so you can get in on that celebration. Let's talk about that. But I think the main point of this memorable little bloody incident here is don't pretend like you're open to serving God in hard ways if you're not even open to obeying his most basic commands. So take care of the obvious elephant in the room first. Is he your Lord or not? So obey him, take those scary steps, don't presume upon him. And the final way we can respond to the presence of the living God, always with us, making us effective, the way we should respond is found in verse 31. And the people believed, and when they heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Because when you see him for who he is and you believe that he is with you and you trust that he is the one who will get the job done through you, then there's nothing left to do but to thank him and to praise him. When is believing that I am is with you the hardest? When do you feel unable to speak of him, unable to trust him with the risk unable to fulfill the role that he's prepared for you. Now, it's fine to lack confidence in yourself, but you must never let that affect your confidence in God. Do you see the distinction? He doesn't need us to have confidence in ourselves. He needs us to have confidence in him. Jesus says to all of his people, I am with you always to the end of the age? Do you dare to doubt him? If not, then let's go and let's get about the good and courageous work that he's prepared for us to do. So Lord, we do ask for that courage. We ask that we would learn from Moses' dialogue and we would have similar dialogues with you. We know you're near. We know that um, you aren't put off by our fears, our hesitancies, but you will stand in the way of our disobedience, and we thank you for that, God. Help us to know you as Yahweh. Help us to see you as the faithful God, the one who is with us, the one who promises to work through us. Help us to worship you rightly. And so, God, meet us now, as we worship you through another covenant sign, the Lord's Supper. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.